morning. Hey, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. If uh, I haven't had a chance to interact with you or get to know you or say hello, my name is Jesse, and I'm part of the pastoral team here. For the most part, I get to teach the Bible here each week, which I'm super uh, thankful and blessed to do. And we're in a series in the book of Ruth, and so if you have uh, your Bible uh, or your digital Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you want to use one of ours or take home if you want a free one, just raise your hand and one of the guys here will gladly hand you one. So just go ahead and keep your hand up. We'll make sure we'll get you a Bible. And like I said, we're going to be in Ruth. Um, and then I just want to do one little thing of business here to, uh, to promote and, and get us ready uh, for a great opportunity that we have tonight. And that is we're, we're starting our, um, our Prothumia series again, which is a series that we do periodically at, at during you know good seasons uh, for the church that allow as most people to come and attend as possible to help train you and to help you go deeper. And Brad Beers is going to be starting a new series tonight on how to study the Bible for yourself, which I think is a great way for us to piggyback off of last week with a, just a tremendous Easter weekend. And, and for those of you who want to know more about God, how to study the Bible, how to get into the Bible, and then apply that uh, correctly, this will be a great time for you. I think you'll really enjoy it uh, and really love participating in it. So that's tonight, 5.30 p.m. If you don't know Brad, I'm not going to point him out to you. I don't want his looks to detract you from going. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Whoa, ba-bam. This is Brad right here. You've heard Brad preach before probably. Brad's, he's looking behind. Yeah, that's him right there, Don. No, it's not. It's not him. Um, and then uh, um, what I want to do this morning is this. As we get ready... Uh, we'll stand and read here in a moment, but as we get ready to segue into uh, where we're at in Ruth, I want you to understand a couple things. First of all, remember the backdrop of what's occurred. We have two main characters initially that we're introduced to. That is Naomi and Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Naomi and Elimelech live in Bethlehem, which is the place of bread. It's a prosperous place for God's people. It's a safe haven for God's people. If you study that place, it's called the place of bread. It had good bread, good food, good almonds, good olives, uh, just a very productive place where God's people could be safe. It was kind of God's city. It will later become the birthplace of Jesus Christ. And so it's just kind of like a very holy, special place. And what occurs in Bethlehem is a famine, and Elimelech decides not to trust God and stay where God's people should reside. He picks up and goes 50, 75 miles in another direction to the place of Moab. And Moab in Scripture is called God's wash basin. It's a nice way of calling it a bathroom. It's a place of worldliness. It's a place of false idol worship. It's a place of, of child and human sacrifice unto the god Chemosh. And so it's just a very secular, very worldly, very dark place. And so Elimelech makes this bad move from Bethlehem to Moab. And upon living in Moab, we see that the results are disastrous, as one would expect when running away from the place of God. The result is uh, the death of Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband. They have two sons. Both of them die. However, they leave behind two Moabite women. So these Israelite brothers marry Moabite women, which is something they should not have done according to God's ways. And now we're left with just three characters, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And we're going to see as we, a little bit tying into this week, as we did a couple weeks ago before Easter, that Naomi now begins a journey for the first time. She's awakened back to the ways of God, and she begins a journey back to Bethlehem, back to the presence of God. Verse 6, where we'll pick up here in a moment, 
is a pivot point uh, in the story. And so I want to tie in with you uh, the number one question I've been asked since Easter, and it's been a great question. I've been asked several times in the last week, based upon those who who came for Easter, those who haven't been to church in a long time, uh, basically this question, which is, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of God? In essence, a simple way to say it is this. The simple way to say it is that you're a disciple of Jesus or you're a follower of Jesus. We're going to go deeper into that this morning, but but essentially it means that you're making God the one that you learn from. So I'm going to ask a question uh, this morning. It's it's a simple question. Who do you follow? As as Christians, we say it this way. We say no one is worship, worship neutral meaning that everyone's built to worship. Another way to say it is everyone has a God-sized shaped hole in their heart, and we try to fill it with anything and everything. So what I want to share with you, I want you to buy into this idea. I think it's a very real reality that there's no such thing as a person who doesn't follow something, that doesn't emulate something. I have four kids, right? Four kids. I have an eight-year-old and I have a two-year-old. My two-year-old tries to emulate everything the other three do. For whatever reason, he doesn't know what he's doing, but he tries to emulate it. Let me ask it this way. Why do you dress the way you dress? Why do you listen to the music that you listen to? Why do you watch the kind of television shows that you watch? What's the driving force? So in Tahoe, right, if you live here in Tahoe, there's a certain way we dress. We have a kind of vibe, right? And, and if you go to SoCal, it's different. Okay, my wife and I go down to Southern California every now and then, and the way that my wife and I dress here is very different than how many people dress there. First of all, most of our clothing for, for uh, down south in Palm Springs where we visit, way too warm, way too sweaty, right? And, and for all of us, we, we, we do certain things because of the kind of people we hang out. Here's, here's another illustration. Have you ever had a good friend, and after hanging out with that good friend, you began to kind of talk like that friend? You began to maybe dress kind of like that friend dresses. Or here's another, here's another example. If, you've, if you're married, you ever notice how your spouse starts to kind of emulate you? You start to emulate your spouse? I know you don't want to admit it, but it's true. You start to do it. Or, or here's another one. It's a really cheesy one. Uh, I'm convinced that for dog owners, over time, you begin to look more like your dog. <laughs> or, or vice versa. I'm not exactly sure what makes that happen, but it seems that people either purchase dogs that look like them or they begin to start to look like their animals. I don't know the, if it's a scientific thing or not, but something happens there. Like John's got this little Pop-Tart dog. John moves and jumps around kind of like Pop-Tart, our youth pastor, just this teeny little dog. And it, he's really overly hairy. So again, right, it just ties it. You see? Truth. You have to believe me now. So, here, so here's what I'm saying. Nobody, nobody, nobody is is free of not following. You're following somebody. And some of you might admit, well, no, I'm a leader. No, you're emulating something. And the reality is, is what the Bible says is that you're either emulating and following in the footsteps of God or the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Or you're following just your own inclinations or your, no, or your own carnality, your own flesh. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to convince those of you who might be here this morning that, that you're, if you're not following Jesus, what would it look like to actually follow Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus? I, I want you to see through the help of the Holy Spirit that he's worth following. And then for those of us who are Christians, I want to strengthen you in your following and encourage you to be stronger and, and more, more aggressive, if you will, in following Jesus Christ, okay? And so 
This happens, first of all, we know by the preaching of God's word. We believe very heavily in the preaching of God's word. And I went on a tangent in the first service. I'm going to do it a little bit here as well. That, that we now live in a time where there are key pastors who are under the camera who are saying, saying that, that God's word is inspired, but it's not inerrant. And the difference is, is that they believe that God uses his word, but that there's flaws in it. And so to a degree, you can kind of pick and choose in there, and you don't have to actually be centered on the preaching of God's word. If you've been here for any length of time, you know we want, we want one of the main symbols in our church to be an open Bible. Because we believe that God still uses his spoken word to change people's hearts and minds. And we believe the same thing that Jesus did. Jesus elevated and quoted scripture as infallible and inerrant. He preached it in a way where he said, look back. Look back at what the prophets said. Look at what they said. In fact, even the the Jews who still practice will tell you that the, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, is the preaching of God's word. It's God, and so I say not just preaching, it's God actually speaking to us. It's his actual voice. When we read scripture, we actually hear the voice of God speaking. There's a saying they say for pastors, what you win your people to will keep your people. What you win your people to will keep your people. Meaning if, if you win people to come to your church and you win people to your church through just awesome music and great programs and, and, a, and a really savvy, good-looking preacher, just say all the opposite things of what I am, right? Um, if, you, if you do that, then, then what's going to keep your people is that. As my pastor used to say back in the day, to strive to, to obtain is to strive to maintain. If you're, if you're trying to win people to programs and win people to really cool music and really cool programs, as soon as your programs change or as soon as another church pops up in the area, people leave because that's what you've trained them to do. You've trained them to go to the place that has the savvy stuff. So, so for us, we believe, my side tangent here, we believe that we win people to the word of God, which points us to Jesus Christ, which means that you'll stay because we won you that way. You'll stay because it's that way. You know why this is good news? All pressure's off of me. Because I'm not winning you to me. And I'm not winning you to our leaders. I'm winning you to the word of God, which means that if, if my performance isn't so good, you're like, chalk it up to him not speaking that well. We still got the perfect word of God. And, and it means that we can point people to Jesus instead of human beings, which is a really big deal. Do you remember in the 1500s, there was a guy named Martin Luther who said, listen, man, the Catholic Church is handling the word of God wrong. First of all, first of all, to, if you were in the Catholic Church in the 1500s, do you know what the Bible was read in? Latin. Do you know what language you spoke in Martin Luther? German. So the word of God was read in Latin, and the homily was preached in Latin, and the common German had to walk out of there and say, the priest is closer to God than I'll ever be, and I have to trust what the priest says. In fact, if I want to confess my sins and get my life right with God, I've got to go to the priest, confess to the priest, and then the priest hopefully will make it all right with Jesus. Then Martin Luther came along and said, no, 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 no. And he broke from the Catholic Church. He said, that's incorrect. And he had this beautiful thing that he said. He said that the common plowman, the person who worked in the field, and the common coalman, the guy who worked in the coal mines, could know just as much and, and know just as much about God and be just in close in relationship with God as the, common, as the everyday priest. So he elevated every human being's stat- status to this level of being able to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every single person could get there. The results were a manifestation of, of what we call the Reformation. The church blew up because people started realizing, oh my gosh, I can know God. Then what he did is he... 
he basically set himself aside because he was under the threat of the Catholic Church, and he translated the entire Bible from Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic into the common German tongue, which allowed for the very first time a common German to open up their Bible and read it and experience God. Is that not good news? So all of that pressure's off of me. If you don't like what you like this morning, go home, read your Bible, experience Jesus for yourself. Amen? So I'm going to use some of that to a certain degree here, starting in verse 6. And if you have the ability this morning, would you please stand with me as we honor God's voice through the reading of Scripture. Verse 6 of chapter 1. Then, speaking of Naomi, she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, and they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is the word of the Lord. And the church said, Amen. You may be seated. I want you to just step into the story again for a moment. Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's left with daughters-in-law. And she hears that God has visited Bethlehem again, that God has brought food to her people. And in that, she decides to get up and journey back to Bethlehem to go back to her people. And as she's going back, we're told along the journey, somewhere along the road, she turns to these two women who have stuck by her side for many years through tragedy and turmoil. And now Naomi is, in essence, willing here to give up the one thing that she has, the one thing left. She's in poverty. She's in relationship crisis. She has no hope. And so she looks at these young women who are still of marrying age, and she says to them, I want you to go back to Moab. You shouldn't come with me. And I want you to find a husband. And I want you to get into a good, healthy marriage. And I want your name to be carried. In essence, what she's doing is she is calling these women to a radical following, a radical kind of discipleship. Now, I recognize in the text that she doesn't outright say to Naomi and, or, oh, I'm sorry, to Ruth and Orpah, hey, follow me, come with me, this is great. No, she's, she's letting them know that if you follow after me, 
There's going to be a great cost. There's going to be a great risk. Jesus, Jesus announces this in his call to himself. If you're going to follow me, you need to know what you're getting into. You need to know what's actually going to happen to you. And so this morning, as we talk about discipleship, which we talk about following Jesus Christ, I want to help answer that big question. What does it look like to actually be a Christian? Here's the first thing that you need to know this morning about becoming a Christian. Grace always comes first. Grace always comes first. Now, we see this in the text in that we don't see that Naomi has done anything to have God come back to the people of Bethlehem. Somehow she's still in connection with her people so many miles away where they tell her God's come back. Food has returned. And this is important because we have to remember again, when was, when was Ruth written? Anyone remember? Anyone want a free book from the bookstore? Where, when was it written? Judges. You get a free book out of the bookstore. Congratulations. So we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll get you one of the free Bibles down at the... No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was during the time of the Judges. Remember in Judges, it's, the Judges is described as everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone's their own king. Everyone's their own God. So in essence, they're not following anybody. They're following themselves. And that was the time of the Judges. In this incredible, heavy, dark time, God's still visiting his people. That's grace. Grace always comes first. Do you remember when, um, when Moses goes to Pharaoh? And Pharaoh has to release God's people through the, the parting of the sea, and they're freed. It's only after their freedom, only after their redemption, that God then takes Moses to the mountain and then gives the Ten Commandments. You know why this is important? Because Christianity is never grasped by your good works or your good deeds. You do not become a follower of Jesus by actually doing things to get Jesus. The, the way that these things happen, the order in which they happen, are supremely important. And the reason is because if you somehow you think this morning, or somehow you think this morning that you're, you're going to get into a better relationship with God because you come to church more often, or because you happen to put some money in a box, or because you're serving next door at the children's church or in the nursery, or because you happen to be greeting, or because you've done some kind of service under the church, you picked up some pine needles, or you came to the church workday and you helped fix our deck, or whatever it is that, that if you think that's how you get God, you're wrong, and it's not how you get God. You can only get God by God getting you first. God chases after you. Jesus runs after you. When we think about salvation, we say, how does someone get saved? We pray for Jesus to intervene in somebody's life. We pray for that person to maybe hit rock bottom. Even though it might be, might be something that's painful in, the, in, the, in their current life, we know that in the long run, maybe that's the thing God's going to use to get that person. Just like here. In the text, we have a woman who, who's in tragedy, and it looks awful, and it looks disgusting. None of us would say, man, I'm so glad this is happening to Naomi. Not in the moment. Naomi certainly wasn't saying it. But the result is sometimes God puts us in a pressure cooker, puts us in a, in a place where we become God-awakened again. And that's exactly what's happened in verse 6. It's a pivot in the story. She hears that God has come in his gracious love to Bethlehem, and so she arises and she begins on that journey to walk back to God again. It's the turning point in her story that God has actually come to visit his people. It's the Easter story, isn't it? For us this morning, we know, man, we're here because we heard in Golgotha, that hill in Jerusalem, that Jesus died for our sins. And in dying for our sins, he transferred to him all of our junk, all of our shame, all of our sin. And in his glorious grace, what did he give us? His perfect life imputed, his righteousness. 
Grace always comes first. So you can't say here this morning, if you think, if you think, or if you're ever preaching to somebody, if you're ever sharing the gospel with somebody and someone says, what does it take to be a Christian? It takes you becoming awakened to the graciousness of God, to seeing that he loves you in spite of you. Someone says, what, do, what does everyone in the Bible usually, especially the Pharisees, what must I do to be saved? Don't we want a 10-step program, friends? I mean, we do. They sell like hotcakes, by the way. If you go into the bookstore, you can find all kinds of five steps to this and ten steps to that. Here's the deal. We weren't given a ten-step program. We were given a perfect person. We were given Jesus. We were given himself. So the first thing comes, the first thing that comes for Christians is, is for us to experience the grace of God. Maybe you'll remember the story of the rich man. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew 19, and I want to start in verse 16. Behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to be saved? You see the question? It's the question I've been asked a few times this week. What, what do I need to do? What must I do? He's asking the wrong question. Verse 17, he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, the man said, well, which ones? It's a good question. Do you see the conversation? What, what do I got to do to be saved? Jesus says, obey all the commandments. You know he's setting him up, right? And Jesus said, well, don't murder. That should be easy to, to do. Don't kill people. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man, notice he's young, because only young people think they do it all, right? The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come in, follow me. Notice the commandment, follow me. Sell everything you have. Get rid of all your material possessions. When the young man heard this, verse 22, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, with God all things are, are possible. Notice, first of all, the rich man never has an identity. Just like Naomi. Remember, Naomi went from having a name in verses 1 through 5 to just being called the woman. And then eventually we'll see that she says, call me Mara, call me bitter. Because whenever we're outside of that relationship with God, we're not connecting with Jesus. Ourselves, our humanity, our integrity starts to decay and fall apart. So this man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? Because that's all I really need to know. Just tell me what I need to do to be saved. So Jesus says, follow all the commandments. Well, he doesn't mention all of them, but he says, follow these commandments. The man says, I've done that perfectly. I don't think any of us in this room knowing those commandments would be able to answer it that way. But Jesus knew that all people follow something. If you're not following Jesus, you're following something else. What is this man following after? His possessions. His material wealth. See, inexplicably, Jesus leaves out the number one commandment. He doesn't mention it in this text which is what? Have no other gods before me. So he doesn't mention it. So the man says, okay, I've done all these good deeds. I've loved my neighbor. I haven't lied. I haven't killed anybody. Okay, so, so what do I got to do? Well, you got to have no other gods in front of you. 
That's what he's saying. Well, how do I do that? Even though the man doesn't ask the question, that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, okay, you want to have no other gods before me? Get rid of your money. Jesus knows exactly what's important to this man. And he knows exactly what's important to you this morning as well that isn't him. And so he asked that question, what are you going to do with your wealth? And the man walks away sorrowful. Then Jesus gives this illustration. He says, hey, listen, let me just share something with you about rich people who have a lot of things. This is Jesus speaking. So if you got money this morning, I don't mean to offend you, but Jesus might. And he says, listen, you need to understand that it's easier for a camel. Yeah, you know that big beast that spits in your face if you get too close? That thing, that thing can't fit through an eye of a needle, my friends. So it's easier for a rich man, I'm sorry, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think he's being literal here. I don't think it's metaphorical. I think he's literally saying there's something within people's hearts who desire wealth and consumerism and things that makes it very difficult for them to see the kingdom of God, makes it very difficult to become a follower of Jesus. He says, if, if that's important to you, it's just like a camel trying to go through an eye of a needle. It won't happen. And his disciples understand this. They're like, What? Because they've been following him. They've been walking with Jesus. We're in chapter 19 of Matthew when this is read. We've got 18 other chapters where they've experienced Jesus and they still don't get it. And so what do they ask? Who can be saved then? So just so, so we're clear, so the, the rich person isn't just picked on, everybody's being picked on. Sometimes the, the most, sometimes the most selfish of us and the most consumeristic of us are the ones who don't have money. It's true. Sometimes the, the most prideful of us are the ones who are holding on to the, this little myopic thing in life. And so G, he, they're saying, they're asking the question, who can be saved? And then what's the response of Jesus? It's impossible. Only with God. Over the last week, are there people that you've been praying for? Because they can only be saved through God. Are there things in your life that you're praying that you can get through? The only possibility to get through certain things, most things in life, are through God. It's an encouragement for us to lean into the Holy Spirit, to follow Jesus Christ upon the foundation and the basis of grace. I can't earn it. I can't get it. God has given it to me. John Howard was here this morning, and uh, he's not here for me to ask the question like I did in the first service, but I just simply asked John, how are you doing today, John? How many of you know John Howard? So he, he's, one of, he's an awesome guy, loves the Lord, serves Jesus here, got a great family. If you ever walk up to John, you should do it on a Sunday, and you ask him, how are you doing? Does anyone know what he says? Better than I deserve. Do you know that? That should be the answer for every Christian. How are you doing? Way better than I deserve. Well, what's better than you deserve? Hell, man. Are you doing better than hell? Yes. I heard one pastor say, what we, need, what we need in our culture more than anything else is a heart of gratitude. And when you understand that you're doing better than you deserve, that gives you a thankful heart. I heard the same pastor say, can you imagine in 40, 50 years what your kids are going to say they grew up with without? Imagine what one day our children are going to grow up and say, man, I had it so rough, I had to swipe up on my phone. I, I had it so hard, I had to be like, hey, Siri, call mom. Like it didn't just know. My, it was, I don't know, what's the next step? Your phone just knows? Call mom. Like where's it going to go from here? Right? I mean, I, I remember, I still vividly remember taking my very first, I'm old enough for this, okay? I know you don't think I am. My very first record for a record player. Did you want to know, want to make, take a guess at what it was? 
Mickey Mouse? No, I didn't listen to Mickey Mouse. I was way cooler than Mickey Mouse. Any other guesses? After I treated her, like, no, I was like, no, man, I ain't answered the question. It was Billy Idol. White, white wedding. That was my very first album. Then, then I remember growing and, and moving from my Billy Idol phase, my very first CD, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This Fresh Prince, DJ Jazzy Jeff. Some of you don't even know that Will Smith had another guy, and his name was DJ Jazzy Jeff. Okay, that was my first. And then, I, I, you know, as things go on, right, technology advances, we've become more and more prosperous as a nation. And Jesus is what he's just said in regards to discipleship is prosperity does not lead to God's favor, and it does not, it's not evidence of God's favor, and it doesn't lead you to a humble place of accepting salvation. Do you understand this? Because this morning, I want to encourage you to understand that, first of all, the good news, the blessing, that you don't have to earn heaven. But don't think that because you're doing financially well, that means that you happen to, be being, you, you happen to have favor from God either. Because it doesn't always translate that way. We'll see that here in a moment. I want to read to you a couple of quotes on um, discipleship from Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, Piper, and Laurie, Greg Laurie. Kind of a broad spectrum of, of guys here. Christianity without discipleship, he says, Bonhoeffer, is, is Christianity without Christ. So no, no following Jesus, no diving into him as a teacher, it's really not Christianity. Piper says, applied to Jesus, a disciple is someone, listen carefully now, who learns from him to live like him. Someone who, because of God's awakening grace, notice what came first, he says. Because of God's awakening grace, then we conform, because of that grace, conform his or, his, his or her words and ways to the words and the ways of Jesus. Or you, might, or you might say it like this, as others have said in the past, disciples of Jesus are themselves little Christ. Greg Laurie says, true discipleship is getting back to the Christian life as it was meant to be lived. In one sense, we might call it radical Christian living. In our age of personal rights and independent thinking, discipleship seems like a radical concept. And when we compare it to the anemic substitute that is often offered as the Christian life today, it is most certainly radical. But in the biblical sense, radical Christian living is normal Christian living. As we dive deeper into the text, we're going to see this reality of what, what Greg Laurie just said, mentioned, because discipleship, my next point is discipleship isn't always, always just bells and whistles and, and party time. It isn't. It's difficult. Take for a moment what's occurring in this passage, Naomi says, listen, Ruth Orpah, this is essentially what she's saying. If you come, if you come to Bethlehem, this may not go well for you. First of all, for, for Naomi to return after 10 years to her people in Bethlehem, she's admitting to her people transparently, which is a part of her act of repentance, I made a mistake to go to Moab. I should have never gone there. She's looking at her peers and anybody else that maybe have known her or knew her story, and she's saying, she's admitting by coming back, what I did was wrong. And then she's telling these girls, she's saying, listen, if you come, if you come, you might be mocked and you might be shamed because you're an alien, you're a Moabite, and there's no protection for you in Bethlehem. You don't, you don't get any of the rights of those who are, who are of the nation of Israel. You are outside of that, even if you're living there. One commentary says it like this. There were Moabite women who by their very presence would be a constant reminder to Naomi and to all of those around her of her pain and her sin 
and abandoning the promised land and marrying her sons to the outside of the covenant people. Every time she saw their foreign faces, she would be confronted with the heavy hand of God's judgment upon her and the loss of her husband and her sons. Do you see the heaviness of this move? This is, this is not a, a small endeavor for her to make this journey back to her people group. And it's not going to be an easy journey necessarily for Naomi and for Ruth. It would be admitting that something was wrong. But can I just say this about discipleship? If, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, it means putting all of your mistakes, all of your junk, and all of your perfection out there for everybody to see. There's a transparency to following Jesus. You, the only way you can do this, by the way, is when your identity is completely engulfed in Christ. As the Bible says, it's no longer I who sin, but in the sin that's within me. Because your identity is so tied, so saturated to Jesus, that, that your performance doesn't matter as it did before you came to Jesus Christ. Psalm 69, verse 5. What does it say? My sins, O God, are not hidden from you. You know how foolish I have been. Can anybody say that this morning? Has anyone fo- not followed Jesus in a way? You're like, man, I have been a foolish. But then 1 John. What does 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 say? It says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? So even though, even though there's this openness and transparency, that's the only way that I can stand before you and share with you the story that I've been through. Growing up the way that I grew up, experiencing brokenness and shame and pain, having a lot of heavy things happen in my life. I can only share those stories. And I can only share with you my, my imperfection as a parent. Not, 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 I don't do it just so I can relate with you. <laughs> I do it because this is really who I am and because, because, hey, man, I don't have to be perfect because Jesus is my perfection. Right now, Jesus is in heaven, and he's standing before God the Father, and he's saying, you see that guy down there? And God's like, yeah, I know him. I know what he's done. I know where he's been. I know what he's been thinking. What do you got to say about it? Well, he's my brother. Okay. (laughs) The good news is Jesus is up there saying that one, is covered by my blood. That one has been, has been blanketed in my righteousness. And when the time comes, you got to open up those pearly gates to him. And God, because of Jesus' sacrifice, finds me acceptable. Not because of my performance, my good deeds. Not because of my lack of my good deeds. But because of Jesus' good deeds for me. It's so freeing. My friends, it's freeing. If, when you get to that place and you can say, yeah, I'm not okay. And it's okay. I mean, that's how it feels. I feel like the most broken, most shattered human being on the planet and still altogether the most complete and perfect person there ever is or was. It's like, man, I've said it before. We're like, Christians are bipolar people. I'm broken. I'm loved. I'm hated. I'm loved. And God's just good to us. And at the end, it's his perfection over us that reigns. But let's be clear. When you begin the process of saying, I'm no longer going to be in Moab. I'm no longer going to play in the wash basin of the world. I'm going to frolic in Bethlehem. I'm going to do that. What's going to happen is people are going to judge you. People are going to think less of you. And people are going to mock you, which is part of what may happen here for Ruth when she leaves. I mean, my, my father who raised me grew up building Harley-Davidson motorcycles and classic cars, Okay. 
So the kind of people before my parents got saved that used to hang around over in Rocky Lane, over in Truckee, California, were the motorcycle-type people, right? My parents were not Christians when I was younger. And my dad, he had all of his friends, all of his friends were not named like Bill and John and Frank. No, 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 no. Grape. That was one guy's name. His name was Grape. He was named after that cartoon character. Remember the big grape ape? Because he looked like one. Indian Joe. Tattoo Richard. One-Eyed Jack. It's like my dad's name was Daylight Dave. He got the least coolest name out of all of them because he was late all the time. Rough dudes. And I remember, man, we had this gal who used to live right down on Truckee River, down at the bottom, and she used to make handmade leather goods. You know, saddles for the, the motorcycle, the bags and the, the leathers, and that was the, the style it was in. You know, the patches for the gangs, all of that. That's what I grew up around. And they were rough, and they were tough, and they were mean. And then one day my mom told my dad, he, she said to him, listen, if you're going to stay with me, you've got to go to a men's retreat with Sierra Bible Church. And he was cussing his bags, cussing, just stuffing them in, just every foul language you could think of. But he didn't want to lose my mom, so he went. And he went to this cheesy Bible camp with other Christian dudes that didn't wear leather who had normal names like Bob and John, right? And so here comes Daylight Dave, all rough and tough, and he comes back home after the retreat and he says, I'm a Christian. The result for me as a young person I saw, all of these motorcycle people started to abandon their friendships with my mom and dad. They stopped coming around because they didn't want to hear nothing about Jesus. They stopped wanting to, to invite him to the bar or invite him to the club or to invite him on the rides because my dad stood for something that they didn't understand, that they couldn't comprehend. And what happened, because my dad turned his back on the world and turned his front side to Jesus Christ, is he lost his friends and he lost an old way, to, a way of life, but he gained a whole new family in Jesus. Here's what you need to know. To follow Jesus means you've got to abandon Moab. You've got to abandon those things of the world. You've got to let those things go. But the good news is, is Jesus doesn't just leave you somewhere on the journey. He puts you back in Bethlehem, and he makes you fruitful, and he makes you in love, and he, he just gives you a way better life than you would have had without him. Isn't that good news? I mean, those of you who know this, those of you who've experienced it, you should be just nodding your head and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you saved me. Thank you that you're in the midst of my brokenness. Thank you that I'm not okay, but I'm okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The heart of a disciple has enormous capacity for gratitude, an enormous ability to say thank you to Jesus. I want you to see some of the things within discipleship, within the characters. Notice Naomi's selflessness. She generally wants what's best for these ladies, but she knows that if they come to Bethlehem, that it's not going to work out unless they really know what they're getting into. You know, if you're ever asking someone to follow Christ, the worst thing that you can do is just simply say this, follow Jesus and everything will be okay. Follow Jesus, man, and your finances, it'll all be taken care of. Follow Jesus, your marriage will be better. Follow Jesus and parenting will be so much easier. Man, those are lies. So somebody done lie to you. Somebody told you that something that wasn't true. She's selfish. She knows. But then we'll get to that, that other stuff here in a moment and address your concerns about what does it mean to follow Jesus and it being perfect. But notice Orpah's logic in this calling. She's thinking it through, isn't she? She loved her mother-in-law. 
She's presumably in her 20s. She's an eligible young lady with a whole bright future ahead of her. And she, she in her logic, realizes, uh, she says, you know what? I don't have to go to Bethlehem and, and be empty. It makes sense. It only makes sense that I go back to Moab, I get a good husband who's got a good job, and we have kids, and we buy the white picket fence house, and, and this is what we do. This, we're going to retire at a certain age, and we're going to just plan our whole life out, and everything's going to be great. It makes sense, and, and we don't see any fault in this. There's, there's not necessarily anything wrong in what she's doing, but she is logically pursuing this thing to the end. She's realizing, you know what? Naomi might be right. This may not be a good call for me. One commentator says that she rejected the road to emptiness, but at the same time unknowingly turned aside from the one road that could have led her to a life of lasting significance and meaning. The world's wise choice to avoid emptiness leads in the end to a different kind of oblivion. Sinclair Ferguson says she weighed the choice of Jehovah plus nothing in Bethlehem versus everything minus Jehovah and Moab, and she chose no Jehovah. She chose Moab. And we see that Ruth, I'm sorry, not Ruth, Orpah, Orpah's logic to not acknowledge God, she just marches herself right out the pages of the Bible. She's not, any, she's not there any longer. When you contrast that, though, with Ruth, and we look at Ruth as the embodiment of what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus, notice this. For Ruth, there is no promise of financial security. There is no promise of material prosperity. There is no promise of comfort. There may mean no spouse for her, no guaranteed provision, and possibly no children at all. There's nothing, absolutely nothing guaranteed for Ruth if she follows Naomi. What if I said it this way? If you follow Jesus, there's no promise of financial security. There's no promise of material prosperity. There's no promise of comfort. It may mean that you have no spouse. It may mean no provision, and it may mean no children, would you still follow Jesus? See, this is essentially what Jesus is asking the rich man, the man without an identity. He's saying, listen, I am of supreme worth. Getting me is sufficient. I think in American Christianity, we have a little bit of work to do in our following of Jesus Christ to ask the question, are we okay with Jesus and nothing else? As one pastor so many years ago said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What we need is more of Christ in our lives. More of our, or, or another way to say it is we need to be surrendering more of ourselves to Christ. Or have you married the two somehow? Well, yeah, I want Jesus, but I got to have the car. And I got to have the right wife. And I got to have my kids act a certain way. What if those things never happen? Is Jesus still good enough? Hey, man, my life has taken all kinds of different turns. My wife and I had a five-year plan for Tahoe Truckee, which has turned into almost 15. God said, your, your five-year plan is now a 15-year plan. might be a 30-year plan. Isn't that what God does? I had planned on maybe, maybe having a kid four later. I remember, I remember Allie and I, would, after three, I was like, we're good with three? We're good with three. And then God was like, here's four. Boom. And I'm like, okay, buckle up. Has anyone's life gone the way they planned it? Oh, man, they're not one hand. Everyone just look around for a moment. Really, there's not one hand. Why? Because life gives you all kinds of different unexpected turns and events, doesn't it? 
And the reality is if you don't see Jesus as the supreme thing, all those turns, all those chasms, all those difficulties, all those troubles, how many of you right now, by show of hands, you don't have to be ashamed of it because we can pray for you, are praying for a child that you've raised that you're hoping will come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that? Look at that. Do we see, Look at that for a moment. I mean, doesn't that press upon you? This way, you, I raised my child. I want them to know Jesus. I know Jesus. How is that child going to get saved? Well, according to everything I just said, the grace of God has to lead them to eternal salvation. We pray for Jesus right now. We ask Jesus to bring an intervention into those children's lives and to bring them back to a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you believe God's big enough to do it? I do. I just some poor podunk kid living up behind 7-Eleven when I was a child. God has saved me. Am I financially rich? More so than most people in the world, but no, (laughs) I'm not. But man, I'm so rich in spirit. I can tell you this morning, I feel so wealthy. Beautiful wife, way better than I deserve. Beautiful kids, way better than I deserve. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. We know Allie, we know you. Hey, I heard, I heard, I think it was Warren Buffett say, say uh, just the other day in an article, always marry better than you and hopefully get them and keep them long enough before they realize it. And his statement was that you always surround yourself with people better than you. Isn't that true? When you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have someone better than you with you all the time, molding you, shaping you into something. And look at, look at her. She's, Ruth is willing to abandon this old Moab for whatever reason, man. Maybe it's just the pain that she's dealt with. Maybe she's seen Yahweh to some degree within Naomi, but she's willing to go to Bethlehem and be persecuted. She's willing to go to Bethlehem and be ridiculed. As one commentator said, there's nothing kosher about Ruth. She'd be as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. But she's willing to go. And literally what it means when she says, I mean, she uses to see the word, she clings. She clings. It's the same language in Genesis 2, 24, where it says a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. It's marital covenantal language. And then some of the most memorable pieces of scripture are found here at the end of what we read this morning. This covenantal language, Ruth says, don't urge me to leave. For where I go, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Do you see how radically she committed? She is, if anything, this is the perfect covenantal description of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. I'll die a sacrificial death with you, Lord. I will follow you wherever you go. It's a language that carries her from from this life into the next life. Notice she says, where I die, I'll die. Do you know how how crazy this is for her to say? It doesn't mean anything to you, but for the Moabites, it it meant if you died in a place that wasn't your homeland, your soul would wander in lostness forever and eternity because she was buried in Bethlehem rather than Moab. And what she's saying is my whole life is going to go into a whole new life. She's willing to leave behind an old people group, the old world for a whole new people group. You know what I absolutely love about the Christian culture and the Christian group that we're a part of? We are the most diverse group on the entire planet. 
When Jesus says there will be no more male nor female nor Jew nor Greek, he's saying, listen, there's no more sexual, there's no more sexual wars between the sexes. Women aren't better than men. Men aren't better than women. White isn't better than black. Black isn't better than white or any other color between. No, 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 no. In Christ, you're all one. You're all equal. There's a new group and a new nation. Do you know that you're an American before? I'm sorry, you're a Christian before you're an American? You, you are a child of God. That's your nationality. And so when someone comes into this room, all that stuff just disappears. We don't say, well, you know, you don't see color. Well, we don't see color in the sense that so many people say. If we see it, we say, welcome to the family of God. He welcomes rich people. He gets them through the eye of the needle, and he welcomes poor people in the kingdom of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so she's now willing to leave and to go into a new place. She's committing her life to Naomi, body and soul, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be covenantal with your God, because your God has already been covenantal with you. He's already done what is necessary for the forgiveness of your sins. She literally renounces all of her ethnic and religious roots and adopts a new nationality and a new religion which belonged to Naomi. To follow Jesus is to leave so much behind, but you gain so much more. Now we know ultimately the reason that we follow Jesus is because we see that he's worthy and we see that he's beautiful and that he's worth it. We have a statement we say around here, we do what we do for his glory. The ultimate goal of everything is that God would be glorified. That's why we center so much on the Bible. So you walk away and you say God's word is sufficient and Jesus is sufficient. But the other reason that this is important, when we read this covenantal language, we ask the question, why, why would I follow Jesus? We see it in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Look at Naomi's goal for her daughter-in-laws. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. It's very similar language to that of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Do you remember it? Jesus says, come to me, follow me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I like how John Bloom says it. The simplicity of Jesus' promise is both striking and refreshing. Jesus doesn't offer us a fourfold path to peace giving enlightenment like Buddha did. He doesn't give us five pillars of peace through submission through submission as Islam does, nor does he give us 10 ways to relieve your weariness, which we pragmatic self-help-oriented 21st century Americans are so drawn to. Unique to anyone else in human history, Jesus simply offers himself as the universal solution to all that burdens us. My friends, to be a disciple is not to be all about 10 steps or five steps or three things you gotta do. It's about coming into a relationship with Jesus. More than anything else, it is my hope, and I don't always do it well, it's my hope that you walk away from here and you don't walk away going, well, man, these are the five things I got to do this week. My hope is you walk out of here and go, man, can you believe those five things Jesus did for me? Can you believe those 10 things Jesus did for me? Can you believe when he hung on the cross, he looked down at his people and said, what? It is finished. What Naomi wants, and I think what we all want, 
to appeal to something inside of you is a life of rest and a life of peace. And, and what if that's him? If you're here this morning, you go, man, I don't have that. Have you tried just totally abandoning everything and giving your life over to Christ 100%? What are you holding back and why are you holding it? Is it really, is that thing bringing you peace? Is alcohol bringing you peace? Is pornography bringing you peace? Is lying bringing you peace? Is all of your video games bringing you peace? Is your drug bringing you peace? Is Netflix bringing you peace? Is your phone bringing you peace? No. No. I was out working in the yard yesterday, and my phone kept buzzing. I wanted to take it and just chuck it through my neighbor's window. I don't know what good that would have done for my neighbor, but it was a thought. Just anxiety. And just returning back to that moment. And that moment for us is always found at the foot of the cross and at the feet of Jesus. Are you heavy and burdened? Come to Jesus. Leave Moab behind and find yourself in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've given yourself to us that we would not be left to our own devices. There's a part of me, in all honesty, Lord, I'm willing to say thank you for just placing this hole in my heart that exists, Lord, in every human being. And there's even more gratitude spilling out for me, Lord, to declare that I'm just thankful that you have filled that hole with yourself. And I confess every now and then, Lord, I, I allow there to be gaps in there to think that sometimes it's Jesus plus something else to give me a little extra boost or you plus some other device or some other technique or some other approach or whatever, Lord. It's just easy to fall into the habit to add to the gospel. For that, Lord, I confess before my family that that is wrong and sinful and that, Lord, I need to repent of it. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower me and our church here as a whole, as a family, to lean into you, that that hole would be sealed tight that exists within us, that only you prevail and only you win within. Give us the heart of gratitude as we worship now for what you've done for us in your grace to give us the ability to follow you, Lord, and to go where you go and to lay where you lay, Lord, to rest where you rest. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.